two men awake to the very same day in two very different ways. The first, Jesus from Nazareth, rolls out of the guest bed of a friend of his, gets dressed in the pre-dawn light, walks up into the hills for an early morning time of conversation with his heavenly father, while the second, a man whose name we'll never know, drags himself out of bed, bitter-hearted, and then strugglingly, depressed as always, labors to get himself dressed. Everything he does is half as easy, twice as hard. The effort to get his tunic over his head, his cloak around his opposite shoulder, the, the breakfast he'll need to make before heading out, all of it. The market goods he brought home but didn't put away last evening, the unwashed clothes and dishes that populate his table, chairs, and floor, those as well. Each morning is a total physical struggle, and an emotional, social, psychological one, too. He looks down and tugs at his right sleeve. He has his tunics and cloaks made special, that sleeve longer. The right hand with which he was born, twisted and turned in toward the inner wrist, is the entirety of his experience of his humanity. From the very first days, he has impressions of his life, a sense of himself. That hand has been the limiting factor on every thought, every hope, every relationship. He thinks of his hand before he thinks of anything else. It is as if his disability represents to him his own inner man. He feels just as twisted inside as his right hand looks. So this is the way he starts today and every day. While, to remind you, up above town, walking through the high grass, the sunlight shining upon the joy of his conversation is Jesus, the teacher and healer. He is now making his way back down toward the town post-prayer. The Sea of Galilee is shimmering below as the Sabbath day gets going. Jesus is smiling to himself. He has already received everything he needs from the Father for the day ahead. So, on that day, when he went into the synagogue, there was this man there whose hand was shriveled. He was sitting, as always, in the back row. He had crossed from his house on the opposite side of the square, avoiding most everyone's eyes, and with his left hand, forcefully opened outward the synagogue door. Whenever possible, he liked to act as if such action was effortless. He went in, turned to the left, took the typical seat he took, again, at the very rear of the synagogue. Not too many minutes went by. When, all at once, that rear door opened, suddenly in walked that teacher-healer, Jesus, that everyone kept talking about. Around him were his friends and disciples, also a group of village elders, plus some children, plus, down from Jerusalem, some of the Pharisees. All of them were all talking at once. The children were singing a song about how God has turned his face to us, while the Pharisees, hearing this, scowled at their words and meaning. 
The village elders still had a question about something he'd said on an earlier occasion, while the disciples of Jesus had a look on their face of vast self-importance. It was altogether a scene. The synagogue leader waved Jesus toward the front. He walked down the side aisle and sat down. And the Pharisees were watching Jesus closely to see whether he would heal the man with the hand on the Sabbath day so that they might bring a charge against him. It had become common knowledge, you see, that every single other individual in the whole town had already been healed by Jesus, except for this man. He had been out of town on business on the night of the mass healing at Simon Peter's house. Suddenly, Jesus turning around in the forward pew, searching for the eyes of that man in the back, said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up and come out here in front. Which, of course, was that man's greatest nightmare. From the days of his youth, from the very first time that someone at the village school had pointed at his hand and laughed, he had always avoided the eyes of everyone. He had always stood in the back row, whenever possible, wherever he was. He had become an expert at particular movements in the midst of crowded places. Never once had he put himself forward for anything at all. And now these words, stand up and come out here in front. He looks down, pulls down at his right sleeve. He walks up the center aisle toward the teacher. Jesus meets him at the front, facing toward the synagogue. Then Jesus said to the Pharisees, gesturing toward this man at his side, whose eyes were downcast, Is it right to do good on the Sabbath day or to do harm? Is it right to save life or to kill? There was a dead silence. Actually, it was a near dead silence. Because listening, you would have heard the uncomfortable movements of the men and women in the crowd. You you would have heard the rustle of the children's tunics as they turned this way and that. You would have heard the shuffling of feet upon the tile floor, the (coughs) from multiple throats as everyone waited for any kind of answer from those national religious authorities on hand. It was a terribly awkward, long, long moment. Everyone in the synagogue found himself assailed by the teacher's questions. Then Jesus, deeply hurt, deeply personally hurt as a man, as he sensed their inhumanity, looked round in anger, in righteous, godly anger as their God at the faces surrounding him. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The sensation started up at the shoulder. A sudden sense like lightning through the nerves, down through the biceps, into the elbow, down through the forearm, into the wrist and hand. An instantaneous and half-conscious realization, I can move it. The whole crowd sees the man's eyes light up. And he stretched it out. And the hand was restored as sound as the other one. Then, over and over, the man extended outward his fingers. He stared at his own hand 
like it was a piece of priceless art. The synagogue realized they'd hardly ever noticed this man before today. He was always back at the back, head down. Well, they now watch him as he pointedly rolls up his right sleeve. But the Pharisees walked straight out, straight out the doors, uh, straight across the center of the town, straight toward the local political offices of the Tetrarch, and discussed with Herod's party how they could have Jesus put out of the way. But Jesus now retired to the lakeside with his disciples. And it was a perfect sort of late spring day. The clouds were huge and billowy overhead. The waters sparkled in that warm sunlight. The air was warm and yet just a little bit fresh. The sea under that sky looked lovely. Its bluish green looked like a painting, just perfect. A huge crowd of people followed him, not only from Galilee, but from Judea, Jerusalem, and Idumea, some from the district beyond the Jordan and from the neighborhood of Tyre and Sidon. This vast crowd came to him because they had heard about the sort of things he was doing. From all those distances, they had heard about his words, his way of teaching, about the healings, about the freedom he brought to those demon-possessed cut off alone. Too, they had heard about the joy of his presence, how it felt to be in proximity to his person. So they are thronging to be near him down at the shore's edge. He is backing slowly toward the water, the water lapping at his sandals. And so Jesus told his disciples to have a small boat kept in readiness for him in case the people should crowd him too closely. It's beached next to him at his right. The little lake waves rock its hull back and forth, side to side. From time to time, he sort of eyes it, wondering if he should get in now. For he healed so many people that all those who were in pain kept pressing forward to touch him with their hands. And the sound of their voices was as music to him. He smiled at all of them and laughed. And evil spirits, as soon as they saw him, acknowledged his authority and screamed, You are the Son of God! But he warned them repeatedly that they must not make him known. And in this way passed the afternoon and the twilight. Well, later, he went up onto the hillside, all alone. This was back of the town, up above the high road. After leaving the beach, he'd summoned not just the closest of his disciples, but also all of the band who'd been with him during the early days. They all hiked above the middle meadows, up into the high meadows, where he suddenly stopped short. I'll go on from here alone, he said. They watched him walk away, up a switchback, up the hill. Everyone sat down together in the meadow grass. The evening light was leaving the sky overhead. The coolness of the nighttime began to descend. They ate what food they had, wrapped themselves in the length of their cloaks, and eventually all fell asleep. Well, here's what they heard waking in the morning light. These shouts came echoing down the hillside, cutting through the morning mist. Simon, who I call Peter, 
James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Andrew, brother of Simon, Philip, who has always believed, Bartholomew, ye who sits under fig trees, Matthew, the head tax collector, Thomas, who trusts me, James, the one who is the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, who some call Jude, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who I love. The booming sound of that voice from high above echoes away and then dissipates. These twelve all rise to their feet. For he'd summoned the men whom he wanted. These inexplicable, somewhat untoward twelve of them. And they went up to him. He was waiting in the stillness of the morning mist at the top of a trail that continued onward up higher, higher. And there he appointed this band of twelve to be his companions, whom he could send out to preach with power to drive out evil spirits. These again were the twelve he appointed. Peter, which was the new name he gave Simon, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, he gave them the name of Boanerges, which means the thunderers. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Patriot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. They stayed up on the hillside for the rest of that day, sitting in a semicircle around their teacher. He spoke at length to them of what he knew would lie ahead. And they re-entered town that evening after sunset.